0: Welcome to the third and final part of our Sheffield special. I hope you've been enjoying this slightly different type of episode. I've certainly enjoyed making them. So, this was our last full day in Sheffield, and we packed a lot into it. Our first stop was to go up onto the moors, and this was certainly good news for our dog, Zarbomba. We had been staying in a cottage on the very edge of the Peak District, to the southwest of Sheffield. So it was an easy 10-minute car journey to get us to a car park at the very start of the trails up onto the peaks. We were heading for a part of the peak district known as Curber Edge, which is full of great slabs of stone and sudden drops tumbling down into Hope Valley. Absolutely gorgeous countryside. There are lots of scenes from Threads uh, filmed up on the peaks. uh, The opening scene with Ruth and Jimmy in the car... Later, with Ruth and Bob gorging on the dead sheep, uh, scenes of survivors trekking across the moor, etc. So, up we go. We parked and got Bomba clipped onto his lead. And as we entered the Peak District, we saw a nice big reassuring sign aimed at dog walkers. Take the lead on the peaks. It politely asked dog walkers to keep their mutts on leads to protect the wildlife, such as birds which nest on the ground, such as curlew and lapwings, and also the various sheep and lambs which might be around. So, take the lead on the peaks, it said. I say this was a a reassuring sign because Bomba is a timid dog, and I'm a very nervous owner, I have probably made Bomba timid. And I do hate to be outside with him and see some great big beast off the lead come charging over to us. So, take the lead on the peaks, it said. So good, I felt nice and reassured. So we walked along a small stony path, edged by a dry stone wall, which led us away from the car park and up onto the peak district proper. Two walkers passed us, coming down off the peak and... One of them was a hippie looking bloke in bare feet and I winced bare feet against that stony ground. A couple of cyclists passed and they both nodded hello to us, which was lovely. Again, there was a sign back at the car park encouraging walkers to greet one another and it seems they did. So people were following the rules. I liked it. My own life and... My own mind have so often been in chaos in the past that I now tend to like it when little rules and niceties are set out and obeyed. It gives me a nice piece of security to cling to in this terrifying world. So everything seemed different up here on the peaks. It was was silent and vast and we were leaving all the grubby chaos and mess and disorder down in the city. Up here... The air is clear and people say hello. A different world. So we crunched along the stony path and came to a crossroads with a wooden marker. One sign pointed north to Curber Edge and one pointed south to Baslow Edge. Lots of edges in this part of the peaks. Um, If you live outside Britain, you might have an image of the English countryside as being Soft and green and gentle. And I suppose it is in southern England, but certainly up in the north there is plenty of edge and stone and drama. Think Wuthering Heights rather than Watership Down. So we were heading north at the crossroads to Curber Edge. But I stopped and took a photo of the wooden signpost because Baslow features in Threads. You might remember that when Clive Sutton, the council leader, is down in the bunker and is standing at a map of Sheffield assessing the damage after the bomb was dropped and plotting where the likely drift of fallout plumes will be, he points to the southwest of the city, to a village called Baslow, and he asks his colleague what conditions are like there. And this is because we assume his family are there. And uh, the verdict for poor old Baslow was not good. What about here?
1: Oh it'd be pretty heavy there. If the wind's still blowing up from the uh, west-southwest, isn't direct line from crew. Oh eight hundred rads, a thousand, difficult to say. Depends what sort of cover they've got, of course. If they got a decent cellar we'd with it on the radio. Oh right.
0: So we go north up onto Kerber Edge. We follow a stony path surrounded by thick clumps of ferns and big tufts of tough grass which seemed to emerge from the ground and remain there, stuck like a like a frozen fountain, tough grass and springy ferns. And emerging from all of this like a big monster's teeth where these big sudden hunks of stone all stained with lichen. Definitely nothing soft about this landscape. You could walk out onto some of these huge stones, uh, just as Jimmy and Ruth do at the start of the film when they park their car right on the edge. Walking out, you can look down into the Hope Valley. And when you do, when you creep out and peep over... It's as though you're looking into a different world. We're up here on the windy peaks, surrounded by spiky grass and sullen stone. But looking out and over Hope Valley, we saw what looked like a completely different England. We saw neat green fields divided up by hedges. We saw clumps of trees, trees which I assume wouldn't stand a chance up on the peaks... The wind would have finished them off, or bent and deformed them, as described in Wuthering Heights. And also by Sylvia Plath in her poem of the same name, which says, There is no life higher than the grass tops or the hearts of sheep, and the wind pours by like destiny, bending everything in one direction. I can feel it trying to funnel my heat away. If I pay the roots of the heather too close attention, they will invite me to whiten my bones among them. (laughs) Now, if there are any Peak District people listening, they might think, stop bloody referencing Wuthering Heights, because as you know, Wuthering Heights is set in Yorkshire, and the Peak District is in Derbyshire. But having visited both Bronte Country and the Peak District, the landscape does seem similar, so that... Perhaps Emily and Sylvia's words can apply to both. So yes, we were peeping down into a softer, sweeter England with neat fields and little trees which seemed lifted from a child's toy farm set and nestled in amongst it all. Yes, it's a cliche, but they were indeed seemingly cosy and nestled were tiny little houses and churches. It looked like Sentimental England versus wild England. And it seemed that Curbert Edge and the Hope Valley was the dividing line. I took photos of it and I have this sweet picture postcard England framed by the stone and the spiky grass of Curbert Edge. It was strange. It brought again the feeling that we were in a different world up here on the Peak District. And at that point my courage quavered and I thought just how nice it would be to be down there in the Hope Valley, sheltered amongst the velvety grass and the toy trees and the cute cottages but no, we had to turn away from that pleasant view because we were up here on the peaks to find nuclear war so we walked on and found another part of Kerber Edge which was full of menacing stone and that Tough grass, and I thought it looked similar to where Jimmy parked his car at the start of the film. I don't pretend to know the exact spot, but it was good enough, so we stopped. And I looked over my shoulder and all around, and no one was in sight. So I allowed myself to indulge in some antisocial behaviour. I got my mobile out and started playing Johnny B. Good at full volume. And as I played the song, I filmed the landscape panning across trying to set the landscape to that theme tune of Threads. And when I put my phone away and we stood again in the sudden, windy silence, I felt overwhelmed. I hope that I hadn't summoned something, disturbed something. If the ghost of nuclear war, which we dodged in 1984, does indeed haunt Kerber Edge, I hope I haven't roused him by playing that song. be silly, I shook off that weird feeling and decided we needed a bit of a laugh to lighten the mood so I turned to my husband David and I nodded to him David, now's the time get it out of the rucksack yes, we had ordered a toy fluffy sheep on Amazon and brought it with us in the car we were going to reenact the scene where Ruth and Bob devour a dead sheep up on the moor we had bought this sheep um, a couple of weeks ago and had to keep it safely tucked away in a shelf because Bomba kept lunging at it, assuming, and you can't blame him, it was a dog toy. So, come on David, rucksack, get the sheep out. David's face went pale. Oh God, I've left it in the car, he said. So David had to turn and tramp back down off the peaks, back to the car to collect the toy sheep which was lying in the boot. I wanted to go with them, of course, because I've read far too many stories of murders and disappearances to be left alone up on the peaks. But we could see some hikers approaching in nice neon orange and blue jackets, so I thought, be brave. I wasn't up here completely alone, so Bomba and I stayed, looked down over the Hope Valley, and David was back in about 20 minutes, carrying a sheep. So again, if you've checked my photographs, there is one of my husband crouching down on Kerber Edge against a big unforgiving slab of stone and he's gnawing on this toy sheep. Again, photos of all of this on my Patreon where I documented the whole trip. So I got my photos of David gnawing the sheep and we handed it over to Bomba. Its job was done and now he could have it. And we walked further up onto the Peak District. But the experience was slightly dented for me when we saw three people come over the hill accompanied by three huge dogs. And these dogs were not taking a lead on the peaks. They were running off the lead. I wasn't sure what the dogs were. They looked like Labrador crosses but crossed with, God knows, uh, mastiffs or something. They were big, bristly, rough-looking things. Old teeth and shoulder blades. And everyone else was managing to respect the the take-a-lead-on-the-peaks rule, but not these people. So we had these three huge dogs running loose and heading our way. And I was instantly worried because they will probably act as a pack when they see we lone Bomba. And that's exactly what happened. I don't want to dwell on it, no one was hurt. But I was made very nervous and very annoyed, particularly when one of the dogs growled and lunged at Bomba. So I scooped Bomba up off the ground and instantly my good mood evaporated and I wanted to get down off the peak. Once the pack had vanished over the hill, I said to David, let's just go. But he refused to let me because he said 10 years of trying to guide or soothe or navigate me through the remnants of my nervous breakdown and various panic attacks and... The main thing that the books and pamphlets have taught him is do not reinforce their irrational behaviour. So he insisted we stay where we were, at least for half an hour, just to let my anxiety dwindle slightly. And only then we leave. Because if we scarpered now, that would teach my rational mind that, yes, whenever we see a bunch of dogs, we need to immediately fear them and run. So we hung about. Other people came by, other people with good boys who were well-trained and who said hello and who didn't lunge and growl at us. But I must admit, I was relieved when we had Bomba nice and secure in the back seat of the car. Which is annoying, as that wave of safety and security which washed over me when the car door clicked shut was, despite David's efforts... A reinforcing of all my stupid, irrational anxiety. Here, behind the locked door and the glass was safety. Up on the peaks was unpredictability and risk. But that was the only negative experience in our trip to Sheffield, and I suppose it was a minor one. And to anyone with more rigorous mental health, it would not even have counted as an experience. It would have been nothing. But it got to me. I'm sorry to say it got to me. So let's head to the Rostingham House for a drink and we'll meet another hobo. Okay, and now we have uh, John with us here today. So John, could you perhaps introduce yourself and tell us uh, your first memory of seeing threads?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm John Coulthard. I actually grew up in Ireland and moved to the UK in the 90s and I live in London. My first encounter with Threads was actually in the late 90s, just basically just after eBay got started, because I think at that time it was actually quite hard to get hold of a copy, um, so I had to order mine from the US. And in some ways, seeing it into sort of crackly NTSC badly converted made it even more menacing. Um, I think one, one of the things that... I find difficult now the choice of whether to expose someone to it who's so not aware of it um, I think at the time when I first saw it I was to shown other people I knew it was had similar interests but then now it's like someone's never heard of it do you do you want knowing the impacts had on me do I want them to see it mm-hmm. knowing that you know, I'm not scarred for life but
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, do you want to put someone else yeah. through that yeah um,
0: yeah and is there a particular scene or even just a particular image from the film that has always stuck with you or perhaps disturbed you more than others
1: yeah the, the, the one thing and it's interesting it's not the not the one going off it's not anything that's supposed to be the aftermath the thing that which is, I find the most um, disturbing is the point where the, the fire engines are moved to safety because it happens in the dead of night and it's very much, it feels like from this point on, you're on your own. This is the end of the, the state you know, looking after you. Everything from this point on, you're on your own. You've got no, no support, no service. It's just, yeah, that's the bit. After that, it's, the, it's actually the the words and pictures scene later on. Oh, yeah. So an age where that would have been what I would have been watching yeah. um, growing up.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, and um, we were talking earlier, John, about every now and then there's chatter on Twitter about doing a remake. Um, what, what do you think about that idea?
1: I don't, it's, a tr- it's a tricky one because, in some ways, having grown up in the eighties, it has—it's very much—it's very much of its time, and I think people younger than me who watching who didn't live through that period, I think it may feel a bit bit distant, mm-hmm. so it's hard to realise that. But then another thing I realised when I first watched it was that actually, has anything changed in terms of how well-prepared UK case? So has it in fact are we less prepared mm-hmm. than we were in the 80s? Mm-hmm. So is it time for, um, not necessarily a, a remake, but another...
0: Another broadcast? That, you know, oh, right, yeah. 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 Okay. Oh. Because uh, when I interviewed Mick Jackson, that was something he stressed. Um, threads might look outdated, but the nuclear weapons still do the same thing. Yes. That doesn't change at you, all.
1: The nuclear weapons do the same thing. Mm. Is there any, are there any, were you better prepared in terms of bunkers or mm. things like that? It still seems to be a case, well, thinking of the situation in Ukraine, handing out iodine tablets seems to be the, the limit of
0: yeah. You know,
1: preparation Yeah. Um, the other impact it had on me, I think, watching threads and particularly the protect and survive segments, is I think everyone has these things that stick with you. And it's <laughs> it's things like when you're viewing a house or in your own house, thinking, "Where's my refuge room? Where's the where's the room that doesn't have the outside, the the windows, the door? Where would it be?" I think, oh, uh, you know. Um, I think that's, there's always little things yeah. that stick with you. Yeah, uh, it does um, um, work its way into every yeah, aspect yeah. of life. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, um, okay, <laughs> great. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. That's great. So are we refreshed after our stop at the Nottingham House? Then let's get back on the road. So we've come down off the peaks, got back in the car, and we're now heading north to Hillsborough. Of course, every British person associates the name Hillsborough with the terrible stadium disaster of 1989. So it's almost a strange surprise to realise that Hillsborough is a residential district of Sheffield. Its name is attached to that horrible disaster, but it's also just a place in Sheffield where people live. So it felt strange to say, OK, David, uh, back in the car, we are now heading to Hillsborough. And we're going for an innocent, and uh, dare I say it, fun purpose, when the name carries all that pain behind it. So we were now heading to the north of the city, that's where Hillsborough lies, and it was a 30 minute drive. And we were going there, of course, to track down Jimmy's house, the Kemp House, the street where the milk bottles melt. It was easy to find Jimmy's house, which is on Hawksley Road. It's a short stubby streets uh, compared to Ruth's big, long, elegant road, so we weren't stuck parading up and down a long row of houses, going, is this it? Could that be it? We were also aided by the scene in the film where the Kempt neighbours pack up their car and head off to Lincolnshire, turning off down a side road as they depart, so it was easy to identify Jimmy's house. We were even able to park the car directly outside, in fact, with our estate car sitting there outside the house, I thought, okay, time to reenact another scene. So we've had David eating a sheep upon the moor. So why not now get him to pack up his car and pretend he's off to visit our Jack in Lincolnshire? So yep, I made David open up the car doors and the boot, just as Ron does in the film made him throw bags into the back and reassure me that he'll be safe at our Jackson Lincolnshire. Here's the clip from the film.
1: Doing a moonlight flip then? <laughs> no, we're going over to our Jackson Lincolnshire so while things get sorted out. I reckon we should be safer over there. Carol, you stop messing about there? and come inside the house and do something to help. Yeah. We'll be we safe anywhere as far as I can see. Well, I don't know. We've a better chance of surviving each country really, haven't we? I mean, where our jack lives is on here, raw houses in the
0: pub. I don't think they're going to bomb that, are they? Well, I think that's about it, Ron. So uh, my husband David, who unfortunately has the same kind of curly hair that Ron does in threads, he packed up the car and he drove off, full of quiet, shaky confidence, off round the corner to Lincolnshire. I filmed it all and the videos are on my YouTube channel. Just search for Atomic Hobo. Of course, once uh, David drove off around the corner, as happens in Threads, he discovers that the road, Cheadle Street, is actually a dead end. So there was no way to get to our Jackson, in Lincolnshire around there. No way to get to any place of safety. But you already know that, of course. Nowhere is safe when the bomb drops. So that is our trip to Sheffield over. I want to thank the hobos who came to meet me at the Nottingham House and I will, um, all being well, arrange another meetup up for the podcast patrons next year. We've already decided to call it Hobocon. <laughs> so please do consider joining our hobo community on Patreon. You can sign up, uh, pay whatever you choose per month, uh, cancel whenever you like, of course, which I know is a concern for a lot of us just now but you're not tied into anything. Pay what you choose, cancel when you choose, but um, joining Patreon allows you to support this podcast and my research, and you will get my regular online updates, you will get extra podcast episodes, uh, access to the Discord chat group, etc., depending on which tier you choose to pay at. It's all there, so please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, and our normal service will resume next week. I'll go back into my nuclear archives and dig out some horror for you. So thank you all for listening.